Hey, I'm Eric Tornberg, and welcome to another episode of Maker Stories, where we explore what makes the makers, what drives them, what they're scared of, how they make sense of the world, and everything in between. This week's episode is with Charles Hudson. Charles is the founder of Precursor Ventures and a partner at SoftTech Capital. In this episode, we talk all about startup investing. We talk about what makes a great investor, how Charles evaluates founders, how he raised a fund, advice for aspiring investors, and we also talk about his past experiences at the CIA, Google, we talk about diversity in tech, the events business, and much more. All right, here's Charles. Charles, welcome to Product Hunt Live. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it is a very exciting time for you. I know we've been t- wanting to do this for, for a long time. So uh, first off, when people ask you what it is you do, what do you tell uh, I tell them that you know for the last five years, I was a partner at a firm called SoftTech VC, really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm in the process of, of launching my own brand new venture capital firm. And I spend my time like a lot of entrepreneurs, both uh, fundraising and meeting with other companies. Cool. And the firm you are about to launch, Precursor? Yep. And tell, us about, tell, tell us how it came about, what, what, what is the goals are? Yeah. Sure. There's a couple of details I can't go into just because of SEC regulations, but I can tell you kind of broadly what I noticed in the market is there were a handful of the early stage seed firms that I think for a long time when they were in the you know, 25 to $50 million range, they were really about fundamentally writing entrepreneurs that first check and putting them in business. But I think a lot of those firms were successful and were able to raise bigger funds. And one of the challenges in ventures, as your fund size increases, the natural tendency is to want to write larger checks. And when you start writing larger checks, the natural tendency is to expect more traction and progress from the company before you write that check. And I just felt like there were so many people who'd sort of graduated from that original small fund, write the first check, support the entrepreneur phase, that the need for that check hadn't gone away, just the people who, would, who were writing it had moved upstream. So I wanted to create a firm that could fill that gap. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to get into the, uh, that, although I want to respect what you can't talk about. But first, let, let's go all the way back. You've yeah. been at all, uh, you know, all seats at the table. You, you worked <laughs> for Google. You worked for yep. you know, startups hired by Zynga. You worked for the CIA com- coming out of college. Is that true? That's right. Yeah, the CIA's <laughs> Venture Capital Group, which is technically a separate uh, organization, but yes, closely aligned. Close so, uh, <laughs> you, you've been all over the place. When you were in college, did you think that you'd become an entrepreneur investor? What did you think you, you were going to do when you were? Yeah, so I had businesses growing up in high school. I had a landscaping business, which was you know wildly profitable. I paper route, sold candy, did all of those things. I never realized that that was being an entrepreneur, I thought that was just kind of making money and taking advantage of things that were kind of obvious and needed to be done around me. I went to college thinking I was going to become uh, a development economist. So I was an econ and Spanish major. Uh, I then quickly realized that <laughs> becoming a development economist means you have to get a PhD in economics, and that was that was not going to happen for me. Then I thought, <laughs> then I thought I was going to be a finance person and invest in public tech stocks because I had uh, worked at a student endowment when I was in college. And then I had this magic moment where I ended up working for a now defunct internet company called Excited Home in 99 and 2000 and kind of internet 1.0. And I just really thought the internet was amazing. And I was sitting here in Northern California thinking in 20 years, how will I explain to my kids and family that I was in the epicenter of tech as the internet was happening and I chose to do something else. And ever since I've never looked back and have been on kind of both sides of the table. Yeah. And Tell me how you got that CIA job. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> I think in life, a lot of things are about you know chance. And so I took an internship at Excite, thinking it'd be a cool way to learn about the internet and to work at one of the leading internet companies. My boss at Excite, her husband is the guy who was leading InQtel at the time, the CIA's venture capital group. So when I got ready to leave, I sort of told her, hey, I've really enjoyed my time here. It's been awesome. But, you know, I think I'm meant to do other things. And she said, you should really go talk to my husband. He's starting this brand new firm. He really needs some help. And maybe there's a role for you there. And that's literally how it happened. That's amazing. And then you spent some time at Google. And some some time after, you know, you spent four years working for the CIA's Venture Capital Group. What did you think you wanted to do after? It's interesting. So, you know, it was the only job I'd had out of college at that point. And I didn't really think I was qualified 
to go do anything on the operating side for a company. I didn't know anything about about you know internal finance. I'd never sold anything. Uh, I didn't know anything about marketing. And so I was thinking about two things. One, I was like, I can get another venture job at another firm. But Inkutel was a pretty special place, and I didn't think I'd have quite as good of an experience. And second, I said, well, maybe I'll go back to business school because that's a pretty compressed way to at least get exposure to a lot of business functions. So I ended up going back to uh, Stanford GSB for 18 months. And then after, what do you think you were going to do after that? Yeah, so in, in, in business school, I realized that what I really wanted to do was start a company. And I was not technical. And this was sort of before the days of, of Treehouse and Code Academy and all these great kind of online teach yourself to code programs. So I asked all of my mentors and advisors, I said, hey, I'm non-technical, but I want to be a startup founder someday. Like, what's the best experience that you recommend I take? And they all said the same thing. They said, you should go try to find a place where you can be a product manager. And they gave me some really specific advice. They said, you need to find a company that's kind of 150 to 300 people because they'll have enough other PMs there that they can help teach you the ropes and you'll be part of a community and, and you know you won't be the only one. And so I ended up working at a company called Ironport Systems that was started by uh, Scott Bannister and Scott Weiss and really had a great time there. Learned I was probably not destined to be an enterprise software product manager long term. It, it was a very inside the building kind of job. And you know, I think at the end of the day, the, the technical requirements for excellence were kind of beyond what I possessed. Do you think that advice still holds today, the advice that you got? For your oh, I do. Oh, I do. I was a product manager for, for less than a year. But even in that period of time, I was part of a couple of releases. And I learned the difference between sort of a business person's articulation of what a product should be and sort of the gap between that and what you need to provide a good engineering team to actually turn that into a vision. And I think if I hadn't had that experience, I wouldn't have understood, you know, the, the concept of trade-offs and sort of what it really means to ask for something to be configured one way as another, what it really means to have a clear enough understanding in your head about what you want to build to be able to translate that to engineers and to know, you know, what things to, to fight about and what things to kind of let go. So I think it was a super useful experience as I went on into BD to just understand kind of how engineering organizations work kind of in a more hands-on way as opposed to kind of as an abstraction. So when you said the technical requirements were, were kind of you know outside the realm of what you were interested in, did you say, okay, now I'm going to be the best BD guy? Yeah. You know, I figured that like at that point in my life, it was a little late to try to become technical. And, you know, I realized also being a product manager, I spent the majority of my day in the building talking to our engineers. I went and saw customers sometimes. But it was a very inward-looking job, and I realized the thing I liked about venture was it was an external-facing role. Like I was out meeting people all the time, and that just seemed to map really well to BD. Um, so I said, you know, I'll give this a shot. And when did you think that getting back into investing would be, or did you always know that you would end up back in investing? It's interesting. I was a board observer for a couple of companies when I was at Incutel, and I just paid a lot of attention to how the CEOs conducted those board meetings. And I looked at, you know, whose feedback and perspective they really valued. And time and time again, it ended up being either the people who'd been in that seat before as founder and CEO, because they clearly had sort of been there before, or it was the people who had decades of venture experience. Everyone in between, you know, they were listened to, but I think not with the same regard as the folks in those other two camps. And I just knew, I said, hey, I've never started a, a venture-backed company. I've never raised money myself. I've never hired and fired a team. I kind of want to have those experiences before I go back into the world of, of venture. So I sort of gave myself seven or eight years of kind of time to learn as an operator before I thought about even going back. The, the, uh, the Fred Wilsons of the world, you know, the bunch of investors, you know, some of the best in the game yep. that have, you know, only invest, you know, they don't have extensive operating experience. Yep. Are there going to be no more Fred Wilsons? Is that a rarity? Oh, oh, I don't think so. I think the reason operating experience is useful is I think it gives you perspective on kind of, you get to know at least one or two job functions in a company really well, and you have a, a well of personal experience to draw upon. I think working in a company gives you a different kind of network as a VC. I think as a, as a VC, you meet a lot of C-level VP people, and you know them in kind of a thin way. I think when you work in a company, you actually have colleagues and peers and people that you know. And those are the relationships that I think, those are the people I go back to to try to fund as an investor, people I've worked with who I know, I've seen their work firsthand. And I think most importantly, 
if you work at a company that's you know really well run engineering, really well run product, you get a first, you get a front row seat for what it looks like to have a really high quality first class function operating at a company. And I think when you go to invest in people, you can compare kind of your benchmark with what they're doing. But I think the skill of investing is actually different. It's about assessing people. It's about assessing markets. It's about picking the right team at the right time. Like that's not something you necessarily learn through operating. So I think we'll continue to see people who have limited or no operating background who are able to become fantastic investors because um, the skills you need are great. And I think you'll find some people who are tremendous operators turn out to be <laughs> challenged investors, we'll say. <laughs> what, what separates a good investor? This is something I spend a lot of time thinking about. I don't have the universal answer. I, when I think about the people who I admire, people like Chamath and Ben Horowitz and Scott Weiss, and all of them, I think, have a certain clarity around what they believe around the arc of technology in the world. I think they have a certain clarity around what they believe you need to do to be successful, whether that's what the team needs to look like, what their background needs to be, kind of scale of problem. And they spend a lot of time thinking about that frame. And I think the other thing I admire about a lot of those folks is I think the only way to be great in this business is you have to be an independent thinker and you have to be willing to do things and invest in things that seem risky or scary. Like I look at, at Chris Dixon's portfolio, I think it's chock full of really interesting companies that I'm sure to other people looked scary at the time that he wrote those checks. And so I think if you don't have the conviction of your own homework, belief, theses, worldview, I don't know how you can be successful in this business. How is your, you know, sort of day to day and life changing, uh, you know, between being a partner at SoftTech and, and starting your own fund, you know, lot, you know, over 300 seed funds were, were started last year. Take us through the process, you know, of what you can talk about in terms yeah. of starting your fund. What's that? I think the big difference is when you join a platform um, that already has traction, like a soft tech or any other established firm, there are certain things that are already going to be in place. You're going to have back office. You're going to have relationships with investors. You're going to have a brand and a presence. You're going to have infrastructure. And that stuff helps you hit the ground running as an investor. And when you start your own fund, you have to do all of that stuff from scratch. It's kind of like when you've been working at Google and you sort of show up and, you know, the lights are on and the computers work and, and everything's there. And then you start your own company and you, you come in the first day with the keys and you go, well, if I don't do it, it's not going to happen. And so I think it, it, the biggest difference, you know, I've raised money for startups and I've raised money for a venture fund. I think the big difference is for a startup, largely speaking, VCs want to be found. Most VCs are on Twitter, they're blogging, they're writing, they have what's If you have an interesting startup, like they want to find you. Not every limited partner who invests in venture capital funds wants to be easy to find or accessible. Mm -hmm. So I think the big difference when you're starting a VC fund is the process of identifying, qualifying, and getting in touch with limited partners who could be a good source of, of capital for your fund is very different than trying to find at least the list of VCs you should contact if you're an early stage founder. Right. No, VCs are everywhere from, from blogging to Twitter yep. to, you know, podcasts. There's no, sort of, <laughs> you know, there's no sort of LP both sides of the table or, or you know, we're uh, kind of demystify LPs. You know, most people don't really understand where they come from. They're a combination of institutions and family mm -hmm. offices and individuals. Uh, tell us a bit, a bit about that process. Yeah, you know, I'm, this is my first time doing this on my own. So I, I'm hesitant to, you know, proclaim any great wisdom. I will say there's one really common thing about, you know, thinking about raising a fund and thinking about fundraising for your startup, which is I tell everyone, start with your strongest relationships. Like start with the people who've known you the longest, uh, who have capacity to invest and start with them because part of, part of the magic is creating momentum. And the best way to create momentum is to go to people who've known you for a long time, who have the capacity to invest and who believe in you and get them to be your early backers. So individuals first. Yeah. And so, you know, I think, and I think just, it's funny in a lot of ways, it's very similar to raising uh, money for a startup. You know, I think in a startup, the kind of pitch and the level of polish you have to have to raise money from angels who know you well is really different from the pitch and polish you have to have to raise from an institutional seed fund. And that's different than what you need for series A or series B. And I think 
venture fund fundraising kind of follows the same patterns. You start with you start with individuals, you move on to maybe family offices and fund of funds, and then maybe finally um, endowments and larger institutions that have kind of a more structured process. And how much of it when you're starting a, a brand from scratch, especially when there are all these established VC brands, how much of it is uh, you know picking the right deal or having the right deal come to you? Boy, <laughs> that's, a, that's a really hard question to answer. I can tell you the way I've been thinking about it is, I think when you go out on your own, you have the, the chance to kind of build new relationships with folks and kind of reestablish yourself in the market and, and tell people what it is that you stand for. And so I think at the stage of investing that I like at the early stage, the three things I think about are avail being available and simply being able to meet and connect with people is a really important skill. Two, 99% of the people I meet, I'm not going to fund. That's just the math. And so getting good at getting, giving people a fair shake at a fair audience and providing you know, pretty clear feedback as to why you're not going to participate if you choose not to. And three, trying to be good on closing, which I know sounds like a really boring thing, but anyone who's raised money hates waiting for that last person to sign docs, to wire money, to close, because when you're on that, that last yard line, you just want to be done. So I'm not you know, as excellent at all those things yet as I plan to be when I'm done uh, fundraising, but it's, it's something I think about a lot in terms of, because I think those are the things that kind of make your reputation as an investor, and that reputation influences sort of who wants to refer things to you, why, and, and to what degree. Do you want to be known if you're not already for a specific vertical? Or? Yeah, so I, I, I really admire people who run vertically focused funds. Like I don't have deep conviction about one theme where I'd want to, you know, I look at the data collective guys. They're really strong on kind of big data technical ideas. I look at Forerunner, really strong on brands and e-commerce. I could list off a, a bunch of other kind of, you know, really focused firms. I'm a generalist by nature. I've spent about half my career working in consumer and about half my career working in B2B. So I'm a generalist and, um, I've been really clear with folks that like my goal is to broadly invest in sort of software on both the B2B and B2C side. And when you think about increasing your, your deal flow and making sure, is it a combination of, you know, uh, other investors referring stuff and other, other founders, combination of being everywhere? Is it hosting events? You know, how do you think about, you know, making sure you're getting deal? Yeah, so I went and looked at all the stuff I did at SoftTech, and I think some people have really strong conviction, like, hey, my best investments come from founders I've backed before, or my best investments come from people that I've, you know, went to school with. Mine are all over the place, and every time I think I've sort of figured out the channel that performs the best for me, something will come out of, like, for example, uh, I wrote a little email book with a friend of mine. It was a really fun project. I found a company because the founder had read that book and was building a product that was similar. And like that, that doesn't fit in my like likely sourcing grid, right? Uh, I've met people cold at conferences who referred me to really high quality founders that I ended up backing. I've obviously backed people that I, you know, are colleagues of mine from school. My view is like, I try to be open and I try not to be too rigid and say, Hey, if you don't get three qualified intros, I'll never meet with you. Uh, that's just not kind of the way I operate. Tell us about the email book. Yeah, it was um, it was kind of a fun project. A friend of mine and I had been getting together and nerding out and just talking about email hacks and productivity hacks that we had. And we were actually at a dinner party talking about this. And one of our friends came up and said, you guys should write all this stuff down. It's really interesting. And so we kind of self-published a little ebook with a bunch of our tips, hints, tricks for increasing productivity and kind of with a real focus on email because, you know, our belief is, for better or for worse, email or some messaging platform with an inbox isn't going away anytime soon. And kind of coming up with your own system for how to manage it's really important. When, when you're talking to founders, this question's from, from Ben from the products and team, mm -hmm. what's your favorite question or, or litmus test to, to ask? I know you're open-minded in terms of not making sure it's certain qualifications. Oh, I have a bunch of them. And honestly, most of them are kind of touchy-feely, warm, fuzzy questions. Uh, my, my favorite one that I ask almost every entrepreneur when I get serious and diligence is, you know, what's the most difficult thing you've ever had to overcome and why? And it's personal, professional. And I, the range of answers I've received to that question are really in everything from someone whose spouse went through, you know, a really difficult medical issue 
while they had a newborn to other people who candidly have identified things that in the grand scheme of things don't strike me as terribly difficult relative to the things you will encounter as a founder. And a lot of what I'm looking for is like, what's this person's pain threshold and what's this person's perception of difficulty? Because being a founder is so hard that I'm looking for people who I know have had to encounter difficult things before and have shown the ability to overcome them. Like sometimes people will immediately go, oh, I had this project that I was working on and my boss didn't want to let me get it done and I had to do all these extraordinary steps and work weekends and it was, I'm like, that's really not what I'm looking for. <laughs> I, I'm looking for, look, my, my basic filter is people and markets. I invest at such an early stage that products will, will morph and change. I'm looking for people who I think have grit and toughness and determination and tenacity. And I'm looking for markets that I think, A, are probably not big today, but will be big in the future. And B, where that founder has some unique insight on how things are going to play out that I think gives them uh, a real advantage in terms of seeing the future. And so I tend to ask questions that are more self-awareness, exploratory strengths and weaknesses about the person as opposed to grilling them on their technical abilities, which I have no business doing, or asking them other kind of gotcha questions. What are some other questions you have? So one of my favorites is, you know, I always try to understand someone's business model. And I was asking, hey, what do we need to, what do we need to believe to get to a fifty to hundred million dollar revenue business with good gross margins? And sometimes it's obvious to me in a pitch that I'm like, wow, this is good. Like for, for example, for advertising businesses, that's a really hard bar to clear because the number of impressions you need to generate or the audience size you need to reach that and to have good margins is really, really tough. A lot of times, though, I use that as my litmus test because a, I want to back companies that I think could someday achieve that. Because I think when you get into that realm of revenue performance, you're a really good M&A target or you have the ability to potentially go public. And B, it gives me a sanity check. Like if we need, you know, 300 million Americans on the service to get to 100 million in revenue, I'm like, well, maybe, maybe we're not thinking about this business model in the right way. Yeah. When you um, actually, you know, Emily asked this question, uh, it's, it's the same question you asked, but to yourself, what's the biggest challenge that, that you've had to face and how have you? Wow. Yeah. I ask my, you know, I think about this a lot for me, it sounds kind of cheesy. It was actually deciding to move from Detroit to the West coast. So I was born in outside of Detroit, Michigan. I came out of here. I had one family member. I'd been in Northern California exactly one day. Uh, before I decided to come out here for college. I had really no social support system. I didn't know much about Northern California. And it was kind of a hard adjustment because Northern California is pretty different from you know, the greater Detroit area in Michigan. And for me, it was the first time I'd really had to um, adjust to a new environment and new people where I kind of wasn't known and didn't know anybody and didn't have kind of family and friends to lean on, like that was actually a really good growth experience. The only thing that the close second is I went to Japan for three months for Google and my manager basically was like, you're just going to Japan. You got to figure it out. And it was really weird because I don't speak Japanese. I didn't exactly blend in when I was over there. And I made a ton of faux pas socially and professionally while I was there. And it was really, give us I was 15 minutes late to a meeting. Uh, with, a pretty senior, with a pretty senior executive from a big Japanese company. Uh, they appreciate that over there. That didn't, that really did not go well. Uh, I, I misused my limited Japanese vocabulary and said something slightly offensive at a dinner party. Uh, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a kind of a surreal thing um, to, to go through. But yeah, moving out, like moving away from my family when I, you know, I was very close to them growing up, was a real adjustment. I'm glad that I, that I went through that and did that. And then honestly, the second hardest thing is my last startup did not have the ending that I wanted and having to come in and tell a team that the company's out of money. And when you know that there's people on your team whose you know, rent payments, car payments are based on your ability to bring in financing or revenue and having to look folks in the eye and tell them that there's no more money and that you've done everything you can, but you failed them. That's like, it was a difficult thing to bounce back from that. Yeah. You know, I also, we, we touched upon this in person once. I spent a yeah. few years in Detroit uh, as well. Um, have you been back in the last few years? Yeah, I go back eight or nine times a year for a variety wow. of events. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite sort of up-and-coming VCs, 
the Ludlow guys are, are based there. Um, and there's actually a pretty good entrepreneurship scene between Ann Arbor and Detroit. It's, it's growing nicely, but still pretty nascent. And I get home between family and professional stuff probably eight to 10 times a year. You still got family there? Yeah, both my family and my wife's family are both from Detroit. So oh, wow. I, was, I was home a lot this past year. Did you meet, uh, did you know your wife from Detroit days or it just so happened that she from Detroit? Ironically, I did not. We went to high school about two and a half miles apart. I had never seen her before she moved here. You met her here? And tell, tell us the story. Yeah, so <laughs> this is a little off topic. It's pretty funny though. So her best guy friend from college is a very good friend of mine from elementary school and he's my cousin's, probably my cousin's best friend. And my cousin lived a mile and a half from me, so I spent a lot of time growing up with and hanging out with my cousin. And he was looking, my, my cousin's best friend was looking at moving out here to take a job. And he sort of said, hey, I want to introduce you to this lady. She's a, my best female friend from college. I think you guys would like become friends. And it took us a while to finally meet, but she was moving here from Atlanta. And he introduced us. And then another person who was on my high school football team knew her from Atlanta and also introduced us. And it was like, happened pretty quickly after that. What good friends. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know them. <laughs> I do. They remind me all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, so uh, you spent four years at SoftTech, or you know, I know you're still there, but almost yeah, almost five, almost five, five years. You know, when you first, and I know you have you know extensive investment experience, you know, going back to if you tell, but what are some of the biggest things you learned from from uh, from Jeff and Steph and team? You know, when you when you first started with SoftTech, boy, I think so much. So, you know, the InQtel experience was like a very specific way of investing. Like we invested in a specific mandate that we co-developed with the agency and like the, the, the guardrails of what we could do were really clear. And coming to SoftTech was different because we could theoretically invest in anything. And I think one of the biggest things I learned from Jeff was how to quickly get to the heart of what a startup was really about in 45 minutes. I think at InQtel, we had a much more involved technical due diligence process that kind of gave the, the byproduct of having deep technical due diligence was you had weeks or months usually to get comfortable with a company and to figure out whether the market made sense or whether the product made sense. At SoftTech, we didn't have that luxury. We would meet people pretty quickly. And then we kind of had to decide, hey, based on 45 minutes, do we think we understand this business well enough to want to learn more? And it's easy if it's a domain where you have strength, but we started investing in areas where like, I didn't know much about B2B SaaS when I had started working with Jeff. Um, and so I think that's one thing I learned. I think the other thing was Jeff is an incredibly responsive, hardworking person on behalf of, of the soft tech portfolio. And just to kind of be able to see that in action. I mean, he did probably 120 investments on his own with no partner and no assistant. Um, to like just to think about the scheduling and time and just seeing him kind of model what it means to be a good partner, what it means to be a good resource for the portfolio was a lot of learning. I think when it comes to having Steph and, and, and Andy on the team, I think it's really funny. You can sometimes be in a meeting with a startup and it can be so clear to you that it's a great idea. And then your colleague asks a question and you go, I never thought to ask that. And suddenly this thing that seemed amazing, deeply flawed. And so I think the benefits, you know, I think having other voices around the table, it's a net benefit. I think it makes you smarter and it keeps you from, from making silly or ill-informed investments. It, it slows you down a little bit though. Yeah. So I mean, at the time you were investing from, you know, 2000, 2004, that was during, you know, downturn. And then I, you know, I, I think you started after the 2008, yep. but a lot of people are predicting, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, apocalypse, or at least a bubble. Yeah. How do you think about investing during uh, downswings of the market? Yeah, so I don't think I'm smart enough to time the market. What I do think I owe it, what I owe sort of my investors, though, is judgment. And so if I think that pricing and deal, if I think that price, the pricing environment and fundraising environment is crazy, I think the smart thing to do is to be counter cyclical. So in times of great froth and bubble, I tend to invest less. And when things are a little bit tighter, I tend to invest a little more. But with the knowledge that the bar will be higher for these companies and that capital preservation and runway extension for them is going to be more important. I mean, I always go back and think about 
everyone talks about the RIP good times deck. Like, don't pay attention to what Sequoia said. Like, pay attention to what they actually did. I mean, they invested in some amazing companies on the back of that deck. And so I, I, what I tell my LPs is my goal is to be steady, is to do kind of roughly the same investment pace in good times and in bad. I think the only difference is when things really do get bad, you end up spending more time uh, helping your existing portfolio companies than you do meeting new people. When you started at SoftTech, did you start as a partner? I did. I did. Yeah. So uh, let's talk for someone who, let's say you're giving advice to someone who's like 29, has solid operating experience, but hasn't had a huge exit or anything, uh, you know, has done BD or, or, or PM at solid startups, but not yet ready to get a partner at, you know, at a top position, but can maybe get a, you know, an associate, maybe a principal at, mm -hmm. a, at a top firm. Uh, and you, you know, say they want to be a uh, aspiring uh, investor one day. Uh, yeah. What advice do you, do you tell them to take it? Do you tell them to you know have an exit and get more successful in the operating side? Oh, wow. So this is like, actually, I have this conversation with people all the time, <laughs> as you can I imagine. So I, I, and, I, and honestly, I give different advice to different people at different stages of their life. So there's some people who I think want to try venture. And I think if your goal is like, hey, I want to try it out. I want to see if I like it and if I'm good at it then I tell people, focus on the quality of the firm and the people you're going to invest with and don't get so hung up on the title because the odds are that, like, you know, there's a chance you won't like it and that it won't be a great fit for you and that you'll miss operating and you'll miss building. Venture is a slow day-to-day -day business. You know, most days, nothing happens with your portfolio companies. They don't go up. They don't go down. They just kind of operate. And sometime, someday in the future you get a data point when they go raise money or sell or shut down that like it was a good or bad company. But most of the time, like you don't get any feedback as to the quality of your decision making. So for people who want to try it out, I tell them like, don't get so hung up on, on whether you're an associate or senior associate or principal or EIR or venture, get, get in the door. For people who are later in their career, um, I give them slightly different advice. I say, look, if, it's, if you are committed to becoming a VC, Try to find a firm that either has a track record of promotion from within or where you get the sense that the partners there uh, want to develop the next generation of people internally. And honestly, like, the funny thing is like, there's so little hiring in venture on an annual basis, and there's so few people who've gone through the kind of analyst associate partner path. It's really hard to draw meaningful conclusions from such a small data set. But I think if you look at a firm that's had 20 associates and none of them have ever made a partner, I think it's safe to assume that like the bar is really high. If you look at a firm where half of the partnership is people that came through the ranks, at least there's precedent for it. And so for people who are later in their career, I tell them be, be a lot more thoughtful about like the culture and promotion history of the place that you're joining, if that's really important to you. And how do you, uh, when they ask whether they should do kind of like A or B or a place that does only seed, is, is, is that a common question? And uh... Yeah, I always ask, I just look at people's resumes and I just say, hey, tell me like why you joined this company. Tell me, because I think ironically, like you can learn a lot about someone's risk tolerance from the kind of companies that they join. And, and someone who's always worked at, you know, Google, Facebook, Twitter, or Pinterest, like when they were functioning, that person on paper probably doesn't strike me as somebody who's going to be naturally gravitating towards the seed stage companies. And a lot, of, a lot of times I'll tell people like, hey, I'm looking at this company. What do you think? I'll just you know, run, run it by you. And sometimes I'll go, gosh, that seems way too early. I'm like, okay, well, then seed is probably not right for you. I tend to find people with stronger finance backgrounds gravitate towards slightly later stage investing because the tools they have are far more useful there than they are at the really early stage. Yeah. Are there too many investors today? Honestly, I think there's not enough. <laughs> I know that sounds like a, a wow. crazy thing to say with 300 seed firms. And here's why. I always try to imagine what the world would look like on the two polar extremes. On the one extreme, if there were one venture fund that had all of the money in the world, the only things that would get funded are the things that sort of struck that individual firm's fancy. And if everybody in the world was a VC, we'd probably have too many companies getting created. The thing I like about having um, you know, slightly smaller amounts of money in more hands is that everyone's perception of risk and riskiness is different whether that's based on the person's educational background, race, gender, market focus area. And I think the way you really get interesting companies created is you need people who 
perceive of risk differently and who look in different pockets to find companies. And so I think, you know, I look at hardware. I think hardware is finally getting to the point where they're between Bolt and Lemnos and Root and some of the really good hardware focus. Like, you know, there's multiple options for you as a hardware startup. You don't have just the one firm that writes seed stage hardware checks and if they don't like you, you're toast. So I think diversity of, of thought and process and outlook and venture produces the widest variety of you know people who get a shot to build something and then the market will sort out the ones that are winners uh josh first round was telling me that there's a big opportunity on on the pre-seed side where you're, you're yep. in it also on the you know, earlier a side so it'll be interesting to see who takes that uh you know you've been doing bd for a long time but how do you think about um you know reputation or, or brand um I, you know I, the what i'll say it sounds really simple um i try to be myself kind of in all interactions so that there's not like the business me and the person I try to be myself. That's one. Two, like I'm a generally optimistic, upbeat person. And I think that that comes across on people. And three, the thing I always remind myself is the vast majority of people that I meet are not going to get money from me, but they're going to remember what the experience was like. And if I don't get back to them, if I don't give them clear feedback, if I'm too difficult to meet, they're going to take that with them. And when their friend asks them, Hey, I'm starting a company. Like, should I talk to this guy? You know what they're going to say? I didn't have a good experience. You know, I tried to get his calendar and it took me like three months or, you know, I emailed him twice for follow up and he never wrote back or he wrote me this kind of BS, like too early email. And like, I wouldn't waste my time. And like, that's my greatest, like that's my greatest fear is that you know i ruin my reputation by not being responsive and you know respectful of entrepreneurs and lps and my friends who send me stuff it, just not being a good citizen because i think it doesn't take a lot of negative feedback out there for that to happen and we live in a world of choice right like as you said there's 300 seed firms like they don't need to come to me they can go somewhere else and so i spend a lot of time thinking about like what does it mean to be a good citizen? And look, I raised money for a venture fund from venture funds while I was a venture partner at SoftTech for my games company. And I had firms that I've had 10 or 15 year relationships with where I pitched them and they never just said no. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm like your peer. Like, I see you all the time. And even they never wrote back and said, hey, you know, it's not a fit or hey, thanks for the time. Like, and like that stuck with me. Like I won't name those firms, but I remember who they are. And I'm like, I should assume that every entrepreneur who doesn't have a great experience with me is going to walk away with that same feeling. Ah, no, besides those things you just mentioned, when people uh, have asked me about you, I said he had the best product debaters performance I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. It showed that yo was not going to be a topic we were, we were still discussing. <laughs> Perfect. So I, I want to briefly touch on, uh, you spent some time in the uh, uh, events business. Yes, I did growing uh, big uh, games conferences mm -hmm. uh, that you know, it made a lot of money. T tell us about the, uh, you know, are you still excited about, about the events business or when people come and ask you for advice on their conference or, or events business? So I think I should probably set the market context for, so when I started the events business, it was not something I had intended to get into. I'd gone to a bunch of conferences in sort of 2006 wow. and 2007. And I just thought they weren't very good and they were really expensive and the content wasn't that interesting. They felt like they were commercials for the sponsors. And I kind of complained to a friend of mine, this, this guy, David Finley, who, who used to be at more David out. And he was like, well, instead of complaining, you should, you know, you should really try out this conference business. And I didn't realize how big it was, but I had a friend who'd been building open source software conferences. And so I went to one, I was like, Whoa, this is, this is really big. And so the reason I think the business I built was able to be successful has a lot to do with timing. Because in 2007, 2008, TechCrunch didn't have Disrupt. VentureBeat didn't have GamesBeat. Um, none of the big tech sort of media companies, Business Insider didn't have Ignite. Like none of them had events businesses. So I was able to work with them as promotional and marketing partners because there was no conflict. And they were like, this is cool. Like, we don't do this events thing. And like, we'll send our reporters and maybe you can make some of our staff, you know, they can be moderators and our audience would be interested in this. 
And a couple of them were like, wow, like we've been sending a lot of traffic your way. <laughs> this is, and, and, you know, and so there was a moment in time when distribution in that business was cheap and free. Also, like a friend of mine who worked for me, uh, he was my business partner in the business. He had all these great hacks. Uh, like he was really good. At, he built the script where we could email, you know, hundreds of meetup list organizers who had game meetups all around the country and offer them discount codes. So we were very aggressive on distribution at a time when most people weren't. So when I talk to people now, I always ask them like, hey, like think about the modern landscape. Like why would you, like why will your conference win? Because now I think the bigger media companies have realized that conferences are a really good way to monetize an audience. And you can give away a lot of written content for free if you can get people to pay you thousand dollars once a year to come you know rub elbows with with their friends and learn i think the other thing i underappreciated was i thought that a lot of the value in conferences was the content and you know i think for the speakers the value was the ability to connect with other people who were at their level for my sponsors it was the ability to get in front of an audience and for the audience it was a mix of networking and the ability to kind of learn something do you think that the conference slash event space today is is totally saturated or do you see a similar mm -mm, i think it's more competitive but i don't think it's saturated so like i think it's i think the difference now is if you see an interesting trend you have to jump on it right away like i feel like all of the bitcoin conferences like everyone sort of saw that coming at the same time and i think you just have to be way more aggressive i also think now like the tech tools like they didn't have honeybook when i was doing my events business they eventbrite like it's funny i was a very early square customer because back in 2007, I needed a way to process on-site ticket registrations. And before Square, I literally had like four laptops. People would go and type into Eventbrite. And I still have the email that I got from the Eventbrite team. They said, hey, we have this, this company, Square. They've got this little credit card reader. Maybe you should try it out with an iPod Touch at your event, and you can process um, tickets at the door. So I think the tech stack for, for running events is much better than it used to be. If, uh, if Product Hunt, if we came to you and said, Hey Charles, we're we're this is all hypothetical. Yeah. Uh, Product Hunt is thinking about maybe hosting a a, a conference. How would you uh, advise? Uh, what would you advise? How would you advise Product Hunt even think? About? I think I always ask people like, "What's your unique asset?" <clears throat> so when I was starting my conference business, I was a VC and I knew a lot of VCs. Actually, I wasn't technically a VC at that time. I knew a lot of VCs and I knew that like they were all interested in virtual goods and games. So I'm like. If I can just get them to come, I've got 40 or 50 people locked in. And I've got, I think, unusual access to that audience to at least promote what I'm doing and see if they'll sign up and they can afford to come. I think the unique thing about Product Hunt is the amount of end user engagement and community. Like I would say, like you guys, if, do, if you do a conference, it should feel more like a fan fest or a festival and less like a dark conference room with a bunch of people on stage in you know, comfy chairs with, with legs folded. I just think that's not like the product kind of vibe. I'd expect it to be 1,000 people, like some startup founders, people meeting each other, talk, getting a chance to meet some of the people behind the most upvoted products, and like people talking about like, I would think of it more as like a community, more like VidCon, something like more like that, and less like, um, I don't know, like, a traditional business conference right. a festival a festival yeah that's what i think we would like i, I would go to the product hunt festival i think that'd yeah. be fine i think i'd meet cool people yeah that's uh, a it's a cool idea okay so um i do want to get into diversity yeah. a bit because you've done so much work you know the community building side with with stealth you know you've been vocal you started a you know a blog last year to highlight yep. uh black entrepreneurs in, in tech Wh where are we right now in terms of, of race? Weirdly, I think we're in kind of a good place, which I didn't feel before, because I think in the beginning, I think there was a lot of conversation about um, whether it's race or gender being an issue. And I think there was a lot of, we should study this and you know we're gonna take it seriously. And I don't think much happened. And I think not much happened because I think people weren't being honest about how they really felt. And I think unintentionally with some of their comments, people have, you know, I think this whole concept around like, hey, we can't hire diverse candidates because we're not willing to lower the bar. I'm like, well, that statement right there tells me that like 
you equate bringing in different people with lowering the bar. Like no one said you should lower the bar. We're, we're talking about, you know, changing the makeup of your, your workforce. And I think, you know, then there was the whole pipeline question, which to me always feels like a, a nice way of saying, I don't want to do anything right now. And I think we're getting to a point of honesty in the conversation where whether intentionally or unintentionally, people are saying, hey, look, I just don't think that there's enough good female entrepreneurs out there. Or like, hey, I, we have biases in this company and we don't know how to overcome them. And so I think only when people are a bit more honest and frank, whether intentionally or unintentionally, about what their perception of the problem, can we really make progress? And look, I think on the entrepreneur side, we've got some really great people, whether it's Deshaun or Tristan or or other people who are building companies that I think, regardless of the color of the skin of the founder, are, are going to be world beaters. And, you know, I think uh, female entrepreneurs are making kind of greater strides even than sort of people of color in terms of getting acceptance and getting a seat at the table. And I think the last thing to change will be the VC side because it's the smallest piece of the pie. And it, you know, there's not a lot of incentive in venture to invite someone into a partnership that you don't know well. It's very hard to get rid of a partner that's not performing and it's not a relationship that's designed to fracture. And so I think what you'll see happen is some of the, the female execs and founders that are successful, they'll become VCs. And I think this will just change because dollars will be in the hands of people who have different networks and different relationships and have a different perception of what an attractive opportunity looks like. And that's going to happen, I think, actually faster than people think because the cost and complexity, when I look at what Angelus is doing on the fund administration side, it used to be that to start a venture fund, you needed 50 or 100 million bucks because you had to have a CFO and you had to have partners and an office. Between Angelus syndicates and some of the more outsourced services, now like five, 10, 15, 20 million dollar funds are totally economically feasible. And there's a much greater pool of people who could raise a five or $10 million you know, first time fund than there are people who could raise a 50 or $100 million fund. So I'm cautiously optimistic, but I'm also kind of cynical with the approach I've seen some of these companies take where it feels like we're gonna hire a diversity person and we're not gonna give them any budget and we're not gonna give them a clear mandate, but now we've done it so you can sort of get off our back. I don't know. I think there's a handful of companies that really care and are trying to do better. And there's a handful that I honestly feel like just don't want to be in the news and they're going to do whatever it takes to not, you know, to not be in the news. I believe uh, Chris Saka just said uh, Tim Ferriss, something along the lines of pretty soon, you know, it, it's happening quicker than you think because you know, they're going to realize it's in their own self-interest. Absolutely. And I tell people all the time, it sounds weird to say when I was at Inkytel in the early 2000s, it was very uncommon to see a South Asian or a Chinese or a Korean founder and CEO. Like it just was, and there were, I remember being in meetings with other firms where they'd say, well, like, can this guy lead? And as you vote, they were all code words for like, we don't think this guy, or it was always a guy, this guy, his accent or his background, we need to get someone we're more comfortable with in here running the company. And I think, greed eventually trumped that belief. And people said, if I don't invest in the Thai network or, or folks uh, from other countries, like I'm going to miss out on some great companies. I better, you know, get over myself. Right. You know, some of these questions coming in from, from the audience are things along the lines of, you know, what advice would you give to an entrepreneur of color or what would you give to a person of color trying to make it into the, does that advice change? from when you're talking to, well, first, you know, answer those questions, and two, does, does it change depending on, you know, uh, whether it's white? Uh, so I think in the Valley, so it's hard for me to say, like, what you should do if you're in New York or D.C. I don't know those markets as well. I think in Silicon Valley, like, you're, the goal for entrepreneurs should be to become known or to become an insider, and I think there's a pretty clear playbook. Like, I remember when Andrew Chen first moved down from Seattle, like, he he moved down and like he pretty quickly I think like he should write the like how to land in Silicon Valley playbook like he did a really good job and, and Ruben and Ruben at honor has a really good medium post about his experience what I tell people is I think the key to being the key to getting plugged in here is to just get known 
and it doesn't take a lot of and it doesn't take a lot of momentum to have momentum i think if you can meet five or six people who can spend some time with you get to know you and if they each introduce you to four or five people and you're good at you know providing others with value it will happen for you really really quickly the thing i tell minority entrepreneurs and female entrepreneurs too is is don't like you will face obstacles but you can't let that like gnaw at you and eat at you and you can't you can't wear it on your sleeve you can't come in combative you can't come in expecting to be underestimated or not taken seriously because that's not the posture you want to have if your goal is to hire people or raise money i think you have to, you should expect that there will be things that will happen to you that won't happen to other people um that will be uncomfortable unpleasant <clears throat> and difficult and i think you just have to persevere past them and i think if you find things that are completely unconscionable or clearly racist or sexist you shouldn't be afraid to call them out yeah so you're optimistic about where silicon valley is is headed from a diversity perspective cautiously I, yeah and i think in pockets look I, I honestly i think there's some companies i hate to say it, they just don't care and i think they don't like the pr negativity that comes with being perceived as not being friendly to women not being friendly to people of color and i think there's some obvious it's funny i tell people if you want to if you want to change the face of your company like hire different people there are plenty of really good qualified smart people of color and women out there that are very capable of these roles and it doesn't have to be just technical roles like this is my pushback to some of these companies half of google doesn't work in engineering Right. They're in sales and ad ops, and like those are jobs where many, many people have the mental aptitude and capacity to do those jobs. And so, why aren't we focusing as much attention on some of these non-STEM opportunities to diversify as we do on just sort of the the core CS and edge? Mm -hmm. There's such a because I think the fear, the feeling in tech is that engineering is always the productivity bottleneck. That's a capacity constraint for most companies, and that for a lot of product companies is the power center or is, or is felt to be the power center. And so I think there's so much energy and the numbers are really, really bad there. And I think a lot of people say, oh, it's a tech company. So the tech roles must be the most important. Why don't we have, it's kind of like directors and actors. It's like, hey, why don't we have more directors? Directors are so important, but you, you need other things to make a movie in the same way to have a profitable tech company. You need people doing other things above and beyond um, writing and shipping code. And so I've been pushing a few people to think about, hey, why don't you do the things that are easier to address? Why don't you address your non-eng pipeline as well as your eng pipeline? Because in the non-eng, the technical requirements for being good at those jobs are just different. Those are things you could go to other schools and find qualified people who could do those jobs. I want to close with some, uh, some broader questions. Uh, when, uh, when you hear the term success, who's the first person that Wow, that's a really good question. I think when I hear success, usually for me, uh, the first person who comes to mind is actually Bill Gates, mostly because I see in him someone who had sort of tremendous professional success and is willing to take his resources and influences, influence and use them on problems that are bigger than him. And then, like, he doesn't, he does at no risk for malaria. Like, he's, he's not going to get malaria in Seattle, Washington. I just think it's really cool to see him have such, like, a great second act and to spend so much of his time and energy on kind of providing resources to address, you know, bigger world-scale problems as opposed to hoarding his wealth or, or doing other things. So he's someone who I think is really, by my perception, successful because he was able to have a good professional career and use the resources that he accumulated to kind of work on other stuff that's like meaningful to him personally. That's incredible. Yeah. When you think about your various you know, experiences, what do you think ties the, you know, them together as a thread? You know, what, what threads them? What, what do you think motivates you? I think most of my best experiences were working on things that were, <laughs> my mom always tells me, she's like, you always pick these hard things to work on. <laughs> um, I realized that I really like creating stuff and working on things that you know seem obvious to me that they should exist but other people uh, maybe don't share that same enthusiasm or belief and i think i get a lot a strong sense of accomplishment from building and creating 
Um, and most of the jobs where I, that I've really enjoyed have been ones where the companies had pretty low odds of success, but the people were amazing and like we were in it rowing together every day and it just ended up being a super fun experience. Yeah, when you, if you can go back to your, let's say 22, 23 year old self just graduating college, yep. what, what would you tell yourself? You know, it's funny, I think about this, I was thinking about this the other day, I, I know for a fact that 35-year-old me would not have taken the Incutel job. The 35-year-old me would have said, ah, this is too risky, go take the Goldman Sachs job, go work on Wall Street, do that. And I think I would tell my 22-year-old self, you have a lot of time to figure this out, and it is much easier to do kind of risky things and recover from them if you can, you know, earlier in your life, because just the nature of professional careers is that most people tend to get more risk averse over time. And it doesn't happen all at once, it kind of happens gradually. And so I would have told the 22 year old version of myself, like do the crazy stuff, like do the stuff that strikes you as fun and interesting. Cause there'll be a point in time in life where like that stuff will cease to be interesting to you. Or you just might not be in the position because of family or lifestyle or whatever. You just won't be able, or just energy level to be able to do some of those things. And I didn't, I didn't appreciate that at 22. I took the Incutel thing because I liked my boss. And I thought her husband was smart. And I always thought like, if this doesn't work out, I can always go back to those like safe jobs in a year or two. And I kind of never did other than Google, so. What's something you used to fervently believe, whether it, it was personally, intellectually, you know, about operating or investing that you now fundamentally misguided? Boy, um, I'll tell you one thing. It's been a very hard lesson for me to learn, which is that, a good chunk of the founding team, like I used to think like it's team, team, team. These people have unique, like there's something interesting about this combination of people. I've had a fair number of successful companies where both founders don't make it to the finish line. And increasingly I'm beginning to believe that it's not just like the two people together, it's having an, in order to have a good startup, you have to have an honest assessment of their relative contribution and scale and for how long they'll both probably be happy and necessary members of the team and that's been like a really hard thing for me to kind of come in like I, I used to go and think like these two founders they're gonna take this company all the way I like founder-led companies I think that they perform better as someone who invests in early stage founders increasingly I see teams I'm like I just kind of feel like they're not gonna make it together and I'm okay with that like I'm okay with like one of them not scaling. And that was like a really, at a personal level, that was a hard thing for me to come to terms with. But I realized that, and ironically, it tends to be the engineering founders that scale out because you know the person, the person who builds V1, at some point that person has one of two paths. They can either become the VP of engineering and manage an engineering team, or they can become CTO architect type person and be the visionary with the complexity of starting tech companies coming down, I meet a lot of people who are in between. They're not terribly talented in or interested in management, so they're not gonna scale to become a VP engineering. And they're not quite at the architect CTO level. So at some point, you know, there's 10 engineers and engineers start grumbling that like engineering, man engineering team isn't being managed well and no one knows what to do and schedules are slipping and you look at that founder and you go, gosh, the person's not really gonna scale to be our chief architect and isn't managerial. So you try to find something else interesting for that person to do. Um, but it's hard to take a founder and then make them individual contributor and just say, hey, you're gonna go back into the line engineering pool. It's like that, that in my experience hasn't worked well. And those are just like tough conversations. And like, I've gotten comfortable now just knowing that in some cases, the founder has a ceiling that I don't yet know or see, but it might come sooner than I'd like it to. That's a fascinating point. This has been a great conversation, Charles. Thank you for, for making the time. Uh, do you have any plugs that, uh, you know, the audience, you know, any asks of the product on audience, you know, entrepreneurs, aspiring investors, perhaps, and or, you know, things that they should look out for you? For yeah, so I'm C. Hudson at Twitter. Um, I'm just Charles at charleshudson.net. I'm easy to find. I will say this, and I'll say this at, at my own peril. I actually try to respond to every cold request that I get to. Like I, I will talk to, and there's probably people on, 
on this blab that I've talked to or, or emailed with who've reached out to me called the bar for me in terms of quality of what you articulate is higher, but I'm perfectly happy to be someone's kind of Ellis Island to the world of tech or investing. If you're new and you have put thought into what it is that you want to do and you want feedback, like I'm happy to give it just, you know, the, you should just know the bar for the cold intro or email is a little bit higher than it would be for the one that comes from referral, but don't let that stop you from, from reaching out. Your own peril indeed. Email is about, <laughs> you heard it. Um, also, and, and uh, people can find your email online. You don't have to get out or yep. is that, that's a test. Yep. That's pretty easy to find. <laughs> uh, Charles, thank you for, for hanging out with us. And, uh, and this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Uh, we'll hang soon. All right. Have a good day, Charles. See you soon, man. Take care.